Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Let me get started again. Thank you so much. This was an incredible, incredible tafsir. We were just saying here that you're you're not going to get this anywhere except anything like this except here. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. Um, shall we um, start? Oh, actually, before we begin, um, we have been doing. Um, our own tarawiyah prayers here at night and we thought that since we live stream our our chuppah um and our, our juma prayers that if anyone would like to join us virtually for tarawiyah um that we would be happy to start live streaming that this evening so we'll do it tonight at 10 o'clock our time eastern time so um just to let you know and please join us so if you like you want to say anything else about that no okay. join us <laughs> okay all right should we start with questions here? Um, in verse 4, it talks about the atrocities that Pharaoh's people were committing, uh, one of them being the assault of the women, and the specific word that was used was yastahi. Yastahi yeah. And then in verse 25, you were talking about... Um, um, Musa's um, wife to be approaching him, and again it uses that word, that that verb, astahiya, uh, or astihiya. Uh, I was wondering if there's any like connection between that. I mean, the the, the connection. Let's take the question. The 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 um, expression, Quranic expression used for um, what happened to the women, the Israelite women, um, is which, which could mean either sexually assault or sexually harass um, or to force into prostitution. That's also a form of istahiyah. Um, and, but when describing the woman that is approaching um, the Prophet Moses um, that she approaches him uh, and Shaina is asking if there is any connection between these two um, and the, the, I think the connection is, is, is uh, um, linguistic because both both words are derived from haya, and haya is in turn derived from haya. But haya means um, uh, modesty or shame or embarrassment or bashfulness. Uh, that's that's haya, and it was in in old old Arabic. Uh, uh, in old Arabic poetry, um, uh, haya bashfulness was was actually taken as a, as a sign of someone who's very alive. Uh, someone who has no haya was someone who's practically dead. Mm. Sort of like their senses are dead. But if you are still bashful, you you still have you get still get embarrassed or. 
then then that means you're you're you still have you're you're still sensitive and so you're still alive. Um, and but then the um, when when you say like I came here it would the, the the context would mean that I have come um, somewhat bashfully or I've come hesitantly but if you say means I violated the sanctity of the of the home um, uh, like literally I've I've entered the home without bashfulness. So it, it all goes to the back to the same root, but it is the context that determines the, the meaning. Okay. Any questions here? Okay, processing. It's a heavy, heavy surah, so it's, it takes a little while to get the, the questions going. So I'll start over here. Assalamu alaikum Ramadan and Ramadan Mubarak. My question pertains to the Tawasim, the surahs that start with Tawasim. Is there anything significant about these surahs or what interpretations for Tawasim are there? Forgive me if this was discussed, I missed it. Yeah, we we talked about the Tawasim um, uh, a few halakhas back. I don't remember. Uh, I think it was Shara and um, there was one before the Shara. Huh? Um, but I mean, there there are the Hawamim, the the ones that start with Hamim, and there's the Tawasim, and the the ones was that start with Tawasimim. And overall, and this is in my opinion, um, the Hawamim tend to. Um, communicate they tend to communicate something that has to do with the core of the an individual's ethics the the type of ethical transformation that must take place within an individual while the Tawasim tend to communicate something about social transformation, public transformation, um, do they relate to what the Hawamim or the Hamim uh, generally are taking to connote the name of Rahman, and the Tawasim are generally taken to connote uh, the essence of Malik and Mulk. Um, and I think the connection is, in my opinion, is rather clear that Rahman 
is always talking to to our inner core, part and parcel of us. Malik and Mulk, and Qudus and Malik, uh, is the Lord, the King, uh, that is telling us uh, if we want to create a moral order, what would be needed? And I think, you know, although I, this is one of those things that I, I had been very hesitant to share for about 10 years, but I think that will bear out. I think that theory will stand the test of time if people go back and uh, analyze it. And Allahu Alam. Thank you. Um, I have a question about verse 10. What is the difference between Fuad and Qalb? Um, well, before, uh, before I answer linguistically, let me look at In this context, um, Fuad is, well, I mean, generally in, in linguistically, um, Fuad is um, a, uh, how do you put it, um, is not simply your the, the the heart as an organ but it is the muhja it is the 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 it's like literally your entire chest cavity uh, which would include your heart your lungs uh, it is that that when when you feel like your 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 heart has been ripped out so that your chest is completely empty. Uh, that's a fuad. Um, although in poetry they tend to think fuad is more eloquent than qal, but there is a slight um, um, difference in meaning. You, you should, you know, um, if you say that your fuad has been terrified, so let's say, um, uh, um, if you use a strange expression, instead of saying, you'd say, that means that something has terrified your very core, not just your heart. Uh, and it, it probably also means that maybe if, if you say it in the context of battle, then that probably means you're a coward. Well, it's acceptable to have your heart be scared in battle, but to have your head be scared in battle, that means you spineless. Um, so when in in this verse it says that um, her fuad became farigh, it, it's as if she felt her uh, her entire chest cavity being so. It's it's like a connoting the depths of her sorrow or the depths of her of her anguish. 
when arata qalb um, to comfort someone's heart, it literally means that now you're not scared, but you still have a lot of sadness. That, that it's so. If I say rabatu ala fuadiha, that means I really comforted her all the way. There's no sadness. There is no sorrow. There's no anxiety, and that's obviously not what happened here. She her fuad became disturbed. And her kalb became comforted because she still felt the anguish of separation and anxiety and sorrow. So it's actually a very precise expression um, if you're writing Arabic well. Anyone done processing? That's right. Okay. <laughs> the there's a risk this will just be a word. That's okay. Uh, thank you so much, Professor. Um, my question is, it relates to what happens when a weak, oppressed people internalise the qasas of oh, those above Because yeah. Yeah. this is, of course, the nature of power, and that's right. what this always happens. This happens today with Muslims. And yeah. You say Sharia to Muslims, and Muslims get scared because yeah. they're internalising the Islamophobic qasas. Um, but the relation between the Israelites and the Egyptians, like Pharaoh couldn't have just relied upon brute force, could he? There would have the nature of despotism is there would have had to have been some Israelites who bought in to Pharaoh's qasas. Um Do we see that in the tradition or in the Quran? And I'm thinking that the word istadafa. Is there enough linguistic flexibility with the term istadafa to have that connotation? Like the Israelites were seeking weakness. They're almost weakening themselves. Yeah, but. Sorry, like two. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, the istadaf is rarely. Joe's pointing out that istadaf is, is rarely just brute force, but the oppressed often internalizes the qasas, the narrative of the oppressor. And um, and the question is, you know, whether we we see an indication of that in the Quran. Um, and I, I think, as we will see, especially as the narrative of the Israelites is retold in Ali Amran and in Baqarah and Surah Al An'am. Um, you you start being introduced to the internalized pathologies of the Israelites themselves. Um, in in their um, in their, for instance, uh, uh, preferring a certain type of food that they think is more consistent with their nature than and and saying no we, we, we don't want the the food of that that was always reserved for our masters um, uh, in internalizing a lot of the idolatry of the Pharaoh even after in internalizing a lot of the racist attitudes uh, in, in both in 
not having the backbone to actually ch stand up for themselves. I mean, and in, in some ways, when we say they were lost in the desert for 40 years, as we will come to it, inshallah, um, it wasn't just a period of punishment. The, the Quran tells us that it was also a period of growth. It's, it's as if they, they needed to cleanse the oppression out of themselves for 40 years in the desert before they could, any good could, could come out of them. Um, and it's, it's remarkable because, you know, if they witness this, this miracle of an entire army drowning, uh, you think the transformation should be instantaneous, but it's not. It, they continue to struggle with the ailments of the impression, the oppression they lived with for a very long time to come. Um, so I think the answer is yes, as we inshallah will see, as we, we come to the stories of the remaining, I mean, because the, the stories of the Israelites goes on after, of course, Moses, so. Does Henry have a question? Yes, was there chicken. chicken today? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I is mean. <laughs> yes, there is chicken. Oh, uh, cool. Not, not the same one, but. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, the the question is, I mean, the idea of qasas is um, almost ambiguous. It's very broad because. So I was wondering if you know, is 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 it meant to be conveyed in its breadth and ambiguity, or is there a more specific notion of qasas because? Um, for one, there's, I mean, the idea of uh, a story or a narrative as in how do you frame and formulate narratives? Um, and then there's another aspect of it is which narratives do you decide to tell? Um, and how, like, what kind of narratives do you take as definitive of a message or an identity or whatever that may be? Uh, so in other words, one is that the, the act of interpretation that goes into a narrative, and then the other is just the picking and choosing of narratives. Um, and then the third is, I don't know if there's any, um, it's, it's interesting how uh, in a lot of, or in one strain of that, at least, like, uh, contemporary philosophy, this idea of nothing makes sense outside of a narrative. Um, you know, like the Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre idea that mm -hmm. in order to make sense, in or meaning only exists within a narrative. And um, the Quran obviously gives you a lot of narratives as a way to, to convey meaning. Um, so yeah, like the my my question is 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 the breadth and ambiguity of qasas meant to be? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think 
I think it is very much like um, when you are you're alerting um, people at the cusp of of real transformations. Um, I mean, put it in a different way. Something happened to Arabs who um, for a long time their, the, the heart and soul of their poetry was flights of fancy, fantasy. Um, the, their poetry is not uh, about precision in, in anything. I mean, a lot of the poetry is, is, the heart and soul of the poetry is exaggeration. And yet, something takes place that they very quickly, and we have evidence of it even within the first century, they are attuned to the importance of how memory is preserved and how memory is told. And these types of transformations don't play, don't just occur by happenstance. I mean, when, when they even with the controversy about the hadith of, of recording the, the hadith of the Prophet, because of the concern that it would be confused with the Quran, but still, there was a sufficient sensitivity to what narratives are going to be told, and especially uh, when we, we know later on, much later on, that the way the narratives was being spun about the beginning of the Islamic message uh, in Byzantia, for instance, is drastically different than what Muslims themselves, the narratives preserved by Muslims themselves. And if it hadn't been for the fact that Muslims were diligent about preserving their own narratives, as with as, as much disagreement and diversity and conflict and, and conflicting narratives there are um, as much as there is but still they they deserve they preserved a corpus of what can be collectively described as Islamic narratives um, these these are you, know, you are, there was a process of acculturation. There was a process by which these people were alerted to things that, um, um, for the Byzant for the, uh, the Persians, for centuries, the only narratives preserved were the narratives produced at royal courts. That's it. It was the palace and the narrative of the palace. All other narratives were worthless. For the Byzantians, it was the royal court and the church. 
Muslims from the very beginning are preserving narratives outside the court and the clergy as they eventually emerge uh, never succeed in monopolizing narratives. So even the, the Khawarij are alert to their importance of their own narratives. And the, you know, the, the, those who rebel against, uh, um, oh, which re reminded me to, to did, did I tell you about the, the rebellion of Zubair? Oh, shoot. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. Let me finish what I'm saying. So, in the same way that Taylor and um, um, McIntyre, uh, Alistair, what's his name? Um, Alistair McIntyre. Alistair McIntyre. Um, they come to the realization that there is no truth outside the context of narratives, or there's no possibility of truth, or even a, no assertion of truth. Qasas, in a very drastic way, is telling Muslims, pay, pay attention to both the, 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 the construction of narrative, the choice of narratives, that, and that narratives create oppression and perpetuate oppression and challenge oppression, and that um, but it it does it in a in a wonderfully Quranic way in in that it it comes you know it tells you a story and then it just tells you at some point the bottom line that the only healthy narrative that that God would consider a moral narrative is the one that challenges al-uluw and fasad fil art Now, it, it, leaves you, it lets you figure it out beyond that. Um, so it's very interesting because I started out saying that when, um, when uh, a Qasas was revealed um, that um, Muslims were, were, were saying, okay, well, this is gonna escalate the uh, persecution against us because it's very clear to the Meccans that we are that as far as the Quranic revelation is concerned it won't let let up on the idea after the death of Abdul Muttalib um, and after the death of Khadija two main pillars that it won't let up on the idea of challenging the oppressors or those who are powerful and assert their power against others. But then what's fascinating about Surah Al-Qasas um, is that in the... Um, in the various Islamic rebellions after the death of the Prophet um, let me see if I, if I 
So when Mus'ab ibn Zubair, uh, Mus'ab ibn Zubair uh, was Abdullah ibn Zubair's brother. And uh, Abdullah ibn Zubair waged a big rebellion, a serious rebellion against Abdul Malik bin Marwan. And so Mus'ab ibn Zubair is, is a da'i. He, he goes around trying to advocate the cause of his brother. And so one of his very famous um, repeated khubbas that he would give is that he would get up on, on a podium and he would recite Surah Al-Qasas. And, um, and when he would say, about Fir'aun, he would point to the direction of the palace of the Malik bin Marwan. And everyone understood that he's saying Abdul Malik bin Warwan is the pharaoh of our age. And um, and then I, I I found many other instances where Surah Al-Qasas, that opening language of Surah Al-Qasas, Fir'aun ala fil-ard, and that theme of Farraqa Ahliha Shia, is repeated even in Thawrat al-Zanj, the rebel, the rebellion by the, the slaves, where they're, they're constantly, the accusation is, we're rebelling against those who've broken human beings into factions, one faction dominating the other. Um, I mean, I think, again, uh, the the that tells us volumes about how these er, these sword were understood closer to the age of revelation uh, than in the scholastic tafsir that we read later on. Uh, although still, I mean, a lot of the tafsir preserve, like Mataridi, for instance, still preserves a lot of the the revolutionary character of Surat Qasas. So. Okay, um, here's another question. I, I find it interesting that after Musa killed someone, he turned to God immediately. Do we know where his worship or knowledge of God specifically came from, considering he grew up with the Pharaoh? Was this something he learned from the Pharaoh's wife? This is actually a really um, um, very good question, because uh, this point was noticed by um, a lot of Muslim scholars and that Musa's expression when he says um, uh, and that he says nafsi. and some say that it was his mother, but then that begs the question of where did his mother get it from? And those who believe that his mother was a prophetess, that problem is solved. They say, well, his, her, his mother was taught by God. 
But the majority actually don't say it was his, mo his mother. The majority say that this is proof that there are an innate good that is known to human beings that revelation confirms but does not establish. And among this innate good is that killing a human being um, is wrong. And they always point to the famous story of Habil and Qabil, the sons of Adam. Uh, so most say that by the time Moses comes, the laws of Ibrahim are long forgotten. It's been centuries. And that, of course, Moses had not received the Ten Commandments yet. But yet, that it was part of human nature. Um, some even then go into these like discussions about how, you know, I don't know how true that is because I, I don't, I just don't know enough, but they, 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 they claim, or maybe it was during their age, I don't know, uh, that animals know that it's wrong to kill unless it's for a food. And that, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. I just don't know. But that's a very interesting question because it's actually expressly discussed um, uh, the what what knowledge is innate and does not need revelation. Um, yeah, I mean, murder is an easy case. Um, most even say that lying and cheating is also easy cases that most people would innately know that lying so for instance when Moses um, tells the father of his wife that he's killed a man and they have this you know this, this sort of hypothetical discussion if he wouldn't have told them that he's being, he's a wanted man, and because that's not very attractive. I mean, if you want to get married to someone, you know, to say I'm actually wanted and I'm a fugitive. And most agree that it's, that it's innately the case that people should know that it's wrong to conceal that information and not disclose it. And that anyone that doesn't understand that is falling prey to the devil um, regardless of what excuses they use, which is very interesting. Great. <clears throat> okay, so we have time probably for one more question. I'm going to combine two. Um, Salam Shah, thank you for another amazing and illuminating session. Do you have a comment on the significance of Musa requesting Allah to designate his brother Aaron as an aide? And how does this relate to other personalities in Islam who were not necessarily prophets but given a special distinction by Allah? And then um, jumping on that question, do we know much about Aaron before this request from Moses? For example, do we know what was happening in Aaron's life while Moses was in uh, Median for 10 years? Had they kept in touch in any way? Um, we know that Aaron was 
apparently raised by the mother and um, of course Aaron is, is a half-brother from a different father um, and that while Moses was raised in palaces Aaron was actually raised as an as an Israelite um, and that he meets Moses after they are adults that Moses eventually in one of his journeys outside the palace he manages to actually meet Aaron um, about the 10 years I don't know but I would suspect if Moses says right away because he, he's traveling to visit his mother and sister and to see his brother when he is um, when he receives the the divine revelation so I would suspect he might because if he's unless he's after 10 years he, he doesn't even know if they're alive and he's just journeying and taking the risk he, there must have been some contact between them I mean the other thing that would make me think that there must have been some contact is that Moses suffered from a severe speech impairment um, there is a mythology that the reason he suffered from a speech impairment is that he once put a hot coal piece of hot coal in his mouth although that's unlikely because I would imagine that you would suffer much more than just a speech impairment if you put hot coal in your mouth um, but he did have a speech impairment and he was very conscious of that and when he asked for his brother is because his he is aware that his brother is a very eloquent speaker and so if he is aware of that you know there must have been some contact I mean it's one thing to be aware of it 10 years ago but he must have been still aware that his brother still can speak eloquently so his request for an aid is often explained in the context of his speech impairment that he's conscious of his speech impairment that he knows that people make fun of him when he speaks that it takes him a while to speak um, while Aaron is outspoken and he, he, he speaks he doesn't pause you know he doesn't need to stutter or, or whatever that speech impairment was um, but Aaron of course was a prophet as well according to most although some a minority says he wasn't uh, but I, I believe he was um, aside from the speech impairment it's unusual I mean we don't I, I try to remember if there's any situation where a prophet requests the assistance of a family member with him um, I don't think so um, but at the same time I mean Moses was going to, to start a revolution an actual revolution he was I mean uh, to just get enough people to rebel against the Pharaoh in and to 
decide to take the risk of disobeying the Pharaoh, knowing fully well that if, if the revolution would have failed, it would have meant certain death. Um, you know, the, the Pharaohs of the past are like the Pharaohs of today. They have no qualms about executing people left and right, like the Pharaoh who's in power in Egypt today. Um, So, I mean, it, it, is a remarkable, it is remarkable that even two people can, can start this revolution in, in, a, in an authoritarian state like Egypt, which, if history books got it right, I mean, it, it was a, an advanced bureaucratic administrative state. Um, you know, they, they could keep track of people and had a very sophisticated system of spies and records and um, and so on. But yeah. Okay, thank you so much everybody. Um, I think on that note we are at the end of our time.